In the real life struggles between right and wrong, justice and injustice, life and death, we all realize that truth does matter. Jesus Christ repeatedly talked about the supreme value of truth. While his life has been scrutinized more than any others, it is remarkable that even skeptics have granted and recognized his unparalleled life and impact. Here, for example, is an opinion from a highly respected scholar, the famed historian W.E.H. Lecky. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may truly be said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Historians, poets, philosophers, and a host of others have regarded him as the centerpiece of history. He himself made a statement that was very dramatic and daring when he said to the Apostle Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 and verse 6. Every word of that statement challenges the fundamental beliefs of the Indian culture from which I come, and in reality, actually stands against an entire world today. Just look at the implicit claims in that statement. First and foremost, he asserted that there is only one way to God. That shocks postmodern moods and mindsets. Hinduism and Baha'ism have long challenged the concept of a single way to God. The Hindu religion with its multifaceted belief system vociferously attacks such exclusivity. Jesus also unequivocally stated that God is the author of life and that meaning in life lies in coming to him. This assertion would be categorically denied by Buddhism, which is a non-theistic if not atheistic religion. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God who led the way to the Father. Islam considers that claim to be blasphemous. How can God have a son? Jesus claimed that we can personally know God and the absolute nature of his truth. Agnostics deny that possibility. One can go down the line and see that every claim that Jesus made of himself challenged my culture's most basic assumptions about life and meaning. It is important to remember, of course, that these basic religions within the Indian framework are also not in concert with each other. Buddha was a Hindu before he rejected some of Hinduism's fundamental doctrines and conceived in their place the Buddhist way. Islam radically differs from Hinduism. Ironically, it was that same Apostle Thomas to whom Jesus spoke these words who took the exclusive claims of Christ to India and paid for the gospel message with his life. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? Is a Christian claim to uniqueness a myth? Can one study the life of Christ and demonstrate conclusively that he was and is the way, the truth and the life? That is the question I propose to answer in this book on tape. I believe there is overwhelming evidence to support Jesus' claims. I begin with my personal story, only to put into context how my own journey began and how I arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he is. The Jesus I know and love today I encountered at the age of 17, but his name and his tug in my life mean infinitely more now than they did when I first surrendered my life to him. I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I have remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. 
I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future. I remain with him certain about my destiny. I came amid the thunderous cries of a culture that has 330 million deities. I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth, by definition, excludes. You hear it a thousand times and more growing up in the East. We all come through different routes and end up in the same place. But I say to you, God is not a place or an experience or a feeling. Pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity or privilege of birth is all that counts and that truth is subject to the beholder. In no other discipline of life can one be so naive as to claim inherited belief or insistent belief as the sole determiner of truth. Why then do we make the catastrophic error of thinking that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims they make are objectively true? All religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly of defining life's purpose. Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions but a caricatured view of even the best-known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. But the concept of many ways was absorbed subliminally in my life as a youngster. I was conditioned into that way of thinking before I found out its smuggled prejudices. It took years to find out that the cry for openness is never what it purports to be. What the person means by saying, you must be open to everything, is really... You must be open to everything that I am open to, and anything that I disagree with, you must disagree with too. Indian culture has that veneer of openness, but it is highly critical of anything that hints at a challenge to it. It is no accident that within that so-called tolerant culture was birthed the caste system. All-inclusive philosophies can only come at the cost of truth, and no religion denies its core beliefs. Within such systemic relativism, one tends to drift and float with the cultural tide and give no thought to the unforgiving nature of reality. That is how life is lived out in pantheistic cultures. No doubt there is a wealth of thought that has built an impressive culture for more than one billion people, a culture that has defied economic privation, political turmoil, and religious hostilities existing in the words of its people as Mother India. One does not have the advantage of choosing where one is born. Yet the words of the poet, breeds there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself has said, this is my own, my native land, ring wrenchingly true. In that cultural air, my life, my language and my values were shaped and tested. I will ever be grateful for that privilege and for the treasured gifts it bestowed on me. The songs, the language and the dreams it lodged in me I hope I never outlive. But a search for the one true God in a land full of gods is a very daunting task. Religion has a checkered history and some of it is reprehensible. An inheritor of the complexity of this culture, 
I grew up with walls of quiet desperation gradually building within me that moved me moment by moment to a point of personal crisis. I have heard it said that every weakness in a capable person is generally a strength abused. That same applies to culture. In the context of my upbringing, the abusers of those strengths of culture confirmed that adage. When I was in school, every student's grades and position in the class were printed in the leading newspapers for all to see. Success or failure were reasons for public pride or shame. One of my closest friends toyed with the idea of suicide after his high school exams because he did not stand first in the entire city of New Delhi. Another one of my classmates in college actually burned himself to death because he did not make the grade. Such distortion that has hurt so many still pervades many cultures. It is plainly wrong, but it is cherished with a passion. This combination of the standard at home and the standard in society became a volatile mix in my life. I showed early signs that I would not be the boast of a powerful dad. This was not deliberate. It was just either the lack of capacity or capacity in search of a purpose. Life crept along while the long arm of cultural pressure was gradually creeping up on me, and I knew I would not pass the test. Every morning we would awaken to men and women standing outside our home, waiting for just one minute of my father's time. He held the keys to numerous jobs and contacts. With folded hands, they would plead for a chance at a job. On his way to the car, he would nod to them as if to say, leave it with me. And the truth is that many were helped from his connections. Scores of people revered his name because of such power. Could I not also have benefited someday from his influence? But too much lurked behind the scenes to offer a simplistic explanation. In addition, my father had a foreboding side. With his enormous position in life, he battled a volatile temper. My lack of focus made it a situation awaiting crisis. That combination was to bring him and me into a relationship that I now regret. I am ever grateful to God that it did not end the way it began. As committed as he was to a brilliant career for me, I was just as desirous of living for the sports field, a love of my life in which he had no interest. He had a point. Every boy growing up wanted to become a cricketer and play for India, just as every youngster in New York wants to play for the Yankees. But I did show some promise. I played for many teams at my college, cricket, hockey, tennis, and table tennis. Yet never once did my dad come to see me play, even in any big game. We were marching to different drumbeats. Throughout these years, I have never lost respect for him. To this day, I believe my father was a good man. Indeed, even a great man, but he did not know how to get close to a hurting, struggling child. I, for my part, pondered within and lived with my own private pain. Over the years, I have come to believe that these things matter more than ordinary people may realize, but perhaps less than extremists would lead us to believe. Somehow, we learn to cope, except that it places us near the edge of self-rejection and renders us more vulnerable when dreams are shattered. Probably the most wrenching words I ever heard my father say to me were, you will never make anything of your life. And frankly, it seemed he was right. He was trying only to jolt me into reality. My mother's comfort could only carry me so far. In that sense, that fateful day when I cycled home was a critical point at which we ought to have sat down and talked. 
But I suppose the freedom to talk does not emerge in a vacuum. The moment of opportunity is built on hours of preparation. Somewhere in the midst of all this turmoil, the hound of heaven was on my trail. His footprints are everywhere as I look over my shoulder now. He was indeed nearer than I thought. I can see now in hindsight the trail that is evident, even in the grimmest moments. When you live in a small two-bedroom home with four siblings and two parents, you cannot run for a hiding place. Yet, it is utterly amazing how one can hide within oneself. But the work of God had long begun. From out of the blue, one day my sister was invited to a youth event that would feature music and a speaker. She invited me to attend this meeting with her. On this occasion, the visiting speaker was a man, though a total stranger to me, was a well-respected Christian leader internationally. My memory of it is too blurred to recall exactly all that transpired. But this I know. He spoke on a text that is probably the best-known text in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3 and verse 16. Even more powerful than what he said was his demeanor. And his heart came through in his words. There was both tenderness and power. Unaccustomed to being at such an event, I found myself walking conspicuously alone to the front at his invitation to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Although I'd been raised in a church, I held out such little hope that its message had anything to do with life that I grasped only a portion of what he said. None of these things meant anything to me. To this vocabulary, I was a stranger. I only knew that my life was wrong and that I needed somebody to make it right. I wanted new hungers, new longings, new disciplines, and new loves. I knew God had to matter. I just did not know how to find Him. I left that night with a hint in my mind that there was something so right about the message, even though I had not got it all together. My confusion notwithstanding, a very important context was put into place. As the weeks went by, I continued to attend all of the popular Hindu festivals and to enjoy watching dramatic presentations of their mythology. I had an ardent Hindu friend who worked very hard at getting me to embrace the Hindu view of life. Then a very significant event took place. I was cycling past a cremation site and stopped to ask the Hindu priest where that person, whose body was nothing more than a pile of ashes, was now. Young man, he said, that is a question you'll be asking all your life and you will never find a certain answer. If that is the best a priest can do,